From high atop Fibush Media World News Headquarters in Rochester, New York, it is the Top of the Tower podcast. I'm your host, Scott Fibush. We are brought to you by Shively Labs. Shively Labs is a division of Howell Laboratories. Shively is a proud employee-owned company with over 50 years of expert antenna and filter design and manufacturing. And by Yellowtech. For broadcasters, podcasters, and content creators, Yellowtech offers solutions for clean, efficient studios with the Mika mic arms and monitor supports, clear audio from Yellowtech's IXM recording microphone and USB sound cards, along with its compact mixer, the Intellimix. To learn more, go to yellowtech.com. Well, we are back from a little bit more of a hiatus than we had planned after doing all of our post-NAB show catch-up. I've uh, been busy in a lot of other areas, working on some sales projects through Fibush Media and StationSale.com. Uh, still some good properties available there if you're interested in uh, an AM in Connecticut or an AM and uh, FM translator construction permanent in Rhode Island. Go visit StationSale.com. New listings being added there constantly as well. Uh, doing some other consulting projects through Fibush Media that maybe we'll be able to talk about here uh, at some point in the near future, but somewhere in there, too, you also kind of need to get away. And that's just what we did a few weeks ago. We had the opportunity to take a, a much-needed family vacation, head out to the West Coast for some family stuff, and then uh, do a Route 66 road trip uh, that took us eastward back as far as Albuquerque, New Mexico. And, yeah, of course, it being a Fibush family road trip, got to do some radio along the way, too. Uh, so the trip included an opportunity to do something that I have always wanted to do, not visit Disneyland, we did that too, but the next day I had the chance to drive up to Los Angeles and uh, turn right off of the traffic-choked 405 freeway and pay a call on one of the most interesting owners in all of radio. Now, there are plenty of owners that you can point to uh, who have owned the same radio station for over 60 years. Well, maybe not plenty, but there are still a few of them out there. There are a few, although even fewer at this point, uh, who have owned a station that is all by itself uh, in a major market. Actually, very, very few of those anymore. Uh, and there are a handful that you can point to uh, who built their radio stations themselves. When you get down to the Venn diagram, though, of where all of those things overlap, I believe you find only one person. And that person, of course, is Saul Levine. Back in 1959, 60 years ago, he put a brand new FM radio station on the air on Mount Wilson overlooking Los Angeles. It was called KBCA back then. It's KKGO now, playing country music. Uh, he's added an AM station since then. He has added several stations in other markets, bought and sold in a couple of places. He operates a winemaking company in California and also, uh, I believe, in, uh, in New Zealand. Fascinating, fascinating fellow. And I had the privilege of sitting down with him uh, for well over an hour uh, in his studios and offices in West Los Angeles, getting the chance to talk to him uh, about his career and about what he thinks of the radio industry now. And, and why am I still talking? How about we just listen to the first part of my conversation with Saul Levine? I want to start out, we were just talking before we started here, about how you got interested in this. So you were you were memorizing lists of radio stations, you said, when you were 9 or 10 years old? Correct. Now, please excuse the laryngitis. I started even earlier. I grew up in this town of 5,000 called Sheboygan, Michigan. The nearest station at that time was Detroit. Uh, that could be heard. Well, there were several, WJ as well as WJR and CKLW could be heard. So uh, well, I was now about uh, 12 years old. And I was, I was trying to convince my father, who was a merchant, to back me financially to start a radio station at the age of 13 in, in Sheboygan, Michigan. 
And he never took me seriously about that. So anyway, I sent for a catalog from RCA. In those days, their equipment was very fascinating. The exterior had curvature, Mm -hmm. and just the kind of thing I'd like to have put in my bedroom or in the the living room. So anyway, I asked for the catalog. Sales must have been slow, because I, I heard from a guy in Chicago. And he said, I'm coming up there tomorrow. I want to make a sale. And I panicked. But he sees this 13-year-old uh, who just wanted a catalog. So anyway, I sent him a frantic letter saying, please, we're not ready yet, don't come. He showed up. And uh, I came home from grade school wearing knickers. He took one look at me. He didn't even say hello. Turned around and walked out. Which, well, you know, he asked for it. I tried to warn him. So, so anyway, then my interest in radio uh, was on a sideline because I went off to college, ended up in California, and then got interested in radio again. So uh, I started my first station, KCAL in Redlands on 1410, a daytimer. And I was able to convince three professional guys. I was now <clears throat> 22 put up the money. So I got a quarter interest, and each one had a quarter interest. And uh, that lasted a couple of years. Uh, they were doctors. They wouldn't listen to me. They didn't know what they were doing. The station wasn't doing well. In the meantime, I heard about this thing called FM. So I got a CP for an FM station in L.A. This was what, 1958, 59? I got the CP in 58. And I also got a CP for San Francisco uh, in 19, a year later, 1959. And I had absolutely no money. But I was then starting to practice law. I'd graduated law school in 55. So I would practice law during the mornings and, and work in the radio stations in the afternoon. I'd sell time, run the transmitter, uh, do everything I had to do, keep it going. So this was KBCA back then, right, when it started? KBCA LA and KBCO San Francisco. San Francisco was interesting, not that LA wasn't, because I managed to lease a piece of land on Mount Wilson. I was thrilled to be at 6,000 feet and uh, put, the, put a little uh, shack together, which we're still in, and uh, found a transmitter, a Raytheon transmitter, which came from, uh, I think it was New Bedford, Massachusetts. They take it off the air. They didn't have faith in, uh, in, in, in FM. So I picked it up with a 335B monitor for $1,500. I, I got a trade deal for a flagpole, and we, we put together a Collins-type ring antenna in a garage for $300. Now you drive up there now. The road is nicely paved, assuming that there's not a wildfire or snow. You can get up there easily. Yes. What was it like up there in the, in the late 50s? Same way. Same way. There was no difference. And I remember we were on the air no longer than a, about a week, and we had no de-icers in this because it was just pipe. That's all, two-inch pipe, twisted. So I tried to get up there with a tower rigger and somehow get the station back on the air, and we couldn't get through. The drifts were as high as the car, so we had to turn around. So I was off the air for about three days. What were you programming at that point? Uh, classical music. And uh, 
programmed that for about a year, and uh, we were up against KFAC, which was really a remarkable station, very well run. We thought we were better because we played we played complete uh, works where they played played uh, excerpts movements. It wasn't a bad idea. We made, it was very listenable at the time. We thought that was terrible. I was a purist. So about the uh, about the eleventh month, I was barely hanging on, just just hanging on financially. A guy shows up, and he's. Um, his, name, his real name is Curtis. Curtis Trump. How about that? It just uh-huh. dawned on me. Curtis Trump. And uh, um, he had a nickname. Uh, well, it'll come to me. Very, very jazzed name. Anyway, he said, I want to, I want to buy your time um, from midnight to 6 a.m. I'll pay you $500 a week. A lot of money in those days. It was all, most of my expenses. But the but the uh, the bad part was I had to put jazz on. Hmm. I took it. It wasn't more than a week or two when two guys, Tommy B and Tommy Tommy uh, Rose, and they would pay me uh, two hundred dollars a week for a couple hours in the afternoon. Before before I knew it, I was all jazz, and uh, and I hated losing the classical part. But I was realistic. It was either. Go Jazz. Oh, Curtis Trump was Daddy Daddy O. Daddy, Daddy O. Yep. So I was really offended because in those days I wasn't uh, I wasn't too realistic about about uh, finances and you know, I wanted to be classical. Anyway, I couldn't. So anyway, we're twenty four hours a day jazz, and it was it was starting to bring in some revenue. So we stayed that way until. Uh, uh, 1989, when KFAC was uh, was sold, mm-hmm. and they went uh, they went rock, which was another big story that jarred the city. So I couldn't let that pass by, and I went classical again. That was the birth of K Mozart, right? Uh, yes, uh, we started out as KKGO, but then we uh, we shifted to K Mozart, and uh, I was we did that for 19 years. We weren't making a lot of money, but I was very happy. So then KZLA drops country music. And uh, it turns out that my son is having dinner at home with us. And he was already working at the station. And he was saying, Dad, this is a rare opportunity, commercially speaking. I mean, because revenue-wise, what a difference. So reluctantly, I agreed to it. We went country, and that was in... 2007, and we're country today. You have, I think, pretty much uniquely at this point, lived this whole history of FM radio on your own from being able to secure a construction permit essentially for nothing. Yeah. All through the boom years. I mean, it's amazing now to think that you could have gotten that facility just for writing off to Washington and saying, yeah, I want to build this out. It cost me $25, and that was for the paperwork I had to have. In those days, I didn't have Xerox. So I used blueprints, house blueprints. <laughs> I think the commission never got those before, which I did. So I did the engineering, which was easy because it was analog. Digital, I couldn't do today. So I did that, and I uh, I built the little building on Mount Wilson, uh, bought the equipment, uh, 
installed the, uh, the studio. I had some help with the transmitter. And uh, got it on the air. Was the studio up at the mountain at that point, or were you down? Well, here's what happened. I made a trade deal with a, with a hotel on Sunset Boulevard in West Hollywood. Um, and at that time, I expected to be on the air within a matter of weeks. But there was a huge forest fire up there, and the Forest Service wouldn't let me build the transmitter building. So uh, the owner of the, uh, of the motel, who didn't, <clears throat> well, I don't know whether I should be <laughs> candid or not, but I considered him, if he wants to sue me, okay, <laughs> unsavory. And he never really believed in this thing anyway, but he went along with me. I took two, two bedroom suites and converted them into a studio and an office. And I kept telling him, I can't get on the air because of the fire. Look, there's the smoke up there. You can see it. He began to believe that I was conning him. I never planned to build a radio station. He kicked me out. So I lost all the money I had. About three weeks later, the fire was out, and I was allowed to put up the building. I had no studio, so we started broadcasting from up there, from Mo Wilson. I didn't have a telephone. Had a guy um, named John George, who not only loved classical music, but he was also kind of an engineer. And anyway, he said, "I'll go up there and I'll keep it on the air. I'll take my sleeping." He was a Seventh Day Adventist, so he'd live off the land, berries. He was a vegetarian, so he took his sleeping bag. And then <clears throat> John, by the way, also was an announcer, the announcer as the and the engineer, and he had in his sleeping bag and so on. So. Um, he said, I'm going to keep the station on the air 24 hours. I told him, John, you can't do it. He said, I'm going to have put an LP on, have a set the alarm clock, and wake me up, and I'll, then I'll change LPs. That went on for a week. He was doing this 24 hours a day, which I don't think the state would allow him to do that today. Anyway, he finally confessed, I can't do it. I, I said, I didn't think you could. So we went back to 18 hours a day operation. So we were on the air and struggling. So that's the circle. What was the point where you really saw it turning around, where it, be, you know, it went from being I'm on FM because I have to be to I'm on FM because this is now the place to be and this turned out to be a, a prescient move? When did that happen? Probably, <clears throat> probably 10 years later. And by the way, I loved AM and I still love AM, which is another story. But there's something exciting about having a 500 foot tower in the air, or six of them in the air, and uh, and all that goes into it, and all the copper in the ground, and so on. But uh, the thing that uh, literally saved FM here in L.A., and I thought was would be the end of FM, was the commission required you to not simulcast a certain number of hours a week. God, all these stations simulcasting now, they're well-financed AMs. Uh, they'll all go 24 hours a day with independent programming. Put me out of business. The best thing that ever happened, because then FM came into its own, and the agency then started buying us. And, and our, my unique programming uh, held up. In fact, on Sunday nights, I had a very unique air personality named Tolly Strode, whose slogan was from the middle of the freeway. 
and uh, the, the King's English wasn't well performed. People loved him. Just, just broadcast from the middle of the freeway. We were the number one FM station in L.A. with that program. And this was a legendary FM market in the early 70s with KNX FM and KLOS yeah. and K-Earth and, and KMET they all going at it. But they didn't take it seriously. They were still just AM. That's what paid the bills. And they didn't put any, any effort into the uh, FM. It, it was almost a joke. Had you tried at points in there to get an AM to go with the FM? Uh, in L.A., well, I, I went on the air in in, in, in um um, Redlands, with, with AM only, and uh, at that time the AM band was saturated, so I couldn't couldn't get on. So the only way I got on was uh, building a station 80 miles away. With with uh, we were actually radiating. Ron, Ron Rackley told me with the with the we had a gain of 10, 25 kW, 25 kW transmitter, 250,000 watts. In a narrow beam, beamed in L.A., and uh, that that really set off a lot of alarms. At the bottom of the A.M. dial on 540, five, five uh, uh, six 500 foot towers. It's, it's a little better than a quarter wave, with a ground system that was a quarter wave. Towers were a quarter wave. And this was out. I've been by where the sun. This was out in the middle of nowhere, out east of Victorville, right? No, we were picked up in Las Vegas, but there were no people in there at the time. So I used to love to drive around a parking lot of a casino in Las Vegas and listen to my station in, in L.A. So, um, so I had a lot of fun. There's somebody I would have loved to have had on the podcast if he were still around was Howard Anderson, who I built that highway radio. I, I interviewed him once yes. for Radio World. Very nice man, very interesting. And um, we, he, we, had, we had a run-in. Really? Yeah, because I decided to put an FM translator in between the two cities, between Las Vegas and L.A., and uh, I actually, <clears throat> you're going to be reading about it now because there's a mine there. It's called uh, the Little Community Has No People. Um, not Miner's Point, but something close to that, where they're mining 90% of the uh, the metal that's used in uh, in batteries. Hmm. So anyway, I I found a spot to. Owned by Telco, no, it was owned by the by the by the uh, Department of Natural Resources, which which had control of the whole desert. I slept in a uh, ninety foot telephone pole, put a ten watt translator, mounted on the pole, put a Yagi up, and barely brought in L.A. <laughs> so I now covered everything from Las Vegas to Los Angeles. Howard Anderson, who had a bunch of stations there, with Howard Hughes as his backer, didn't like that. So he gave me all kinds of trouble, and he got me put off the air. Really? Yeah. That's interesting. I mean, those stations are, are a shadow of what they once were because everybody's listening, presumably, to streaming radio or satellite or iPods or whatever on the way up. Mm-hmm. What is the situation like here? How How are you holding up as, you know, still a standalone 1FM, 1AM in a market this size? It isn't easy. And you have to be a pe- you have to be an optimist because every time somebody says to me, oh, is radio still around? Uh, my stomach sinks. 
But uh, surprisingly, radio is doing fine. And uh, as a matter of fact, you take uh, Sirius and its combination, it never shows a two share in the market of all their stations combined. So everybody believes that they're killing us, and they're not killing us. Yeah, great position with country music these days, being in a market like Los Angeles. You've done interesting things programming-wise with using country artists as air talent here. We have. That was my son's idea. And uh, it all came about that uh, our, um, our, midday, our midday person, for personal, reason, for personal reasons, had to take a leave of absence. And so it occurred to my son, Michael, that uh, why don't we just get these... Uh, these artists who come to town, put them on the air. And, it's, and we're still doing it. It works out very well. As a matter of fact, there's a station owned by a gigantic company out in uh, Riverside, San Bernardino, whose name will be unmentioned. <laughs> and when we started to have the, uh, the top artists in the country, uh, everybody except Taylor Swift, uh, they didn't like it. So they, they threatened us. I'm being very, very candid. Threatened to go to the labels and have our access to music removed, go to the FCC and complain, complain that we were a monopoly against their 500 stations, 1,000 stations. Including, what, six or seven right here in L.A.? Maximum uh, seven, yeah. seven FM, a uh, couple AM, yeah. So we just ignored them. And uh, it's, the concept has worked out. And, of course, you ended up with an AM station here in the long run, the old KGIL up in the, in the San Fernando Valley. And I know you've, you've moved around a lot with different formats there. It seems to have settled in very nicely with this oldies format now. Yeah, and they're all niche formats, all niche. And, by the way, we bought the station from uh, Mr. Buckley from New York. What a gentleman. I, I've never dealt with anybody in radio who was as nice as he was. That was a completely class operation there. Yeah, but he was a class man. Right. And uh, the interesting thing is we, we got the station uh, sitting on seven and a half acres of land, prime land in the valley. So I asked uh, Bill, what do you want for the land? He said, oh, that's, that's yours. Wow. He gave it to me. The land is now worth more than the station. And you will hear much more from Saul Levine coming up in part two of our interview, which you will hear right here next week on the Top of the Tower podcast, and then more from the trip too, including a visit to what I think is probably the foremost Native American-owned radio enterprise anywhere in the country. Got a chance to stop off there as well. It is all ahead and so much more from the Top of the Tower podcast. Thanks for being back with us. Again, we are brought to you by Yellowtech for broadcasters, podcasters, and content creators. Yellowtech offers solutions for clean, efficient studios with the Mika mic arms and monitor supports. Clear audio from Yellowtech's IXM recording microphone and USB sound cards, along with its compact mixer, the Intellimix. To learn more, go to yellowtech.com. And from Shively Labs. Shively Labs is a division of Howell Laboratories. Shively is a proud employee-owned company with over 50 years of expert antenna and filter design and manufacturing. That is the Top of the Tower podcast. We will be right back here with you next week. Thanks for listening.